I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. How many have your Bibles with you this evening? Good. We're going to need them as we study Mormonism in the light of the Scriptures. If there are any Mormons here this evening, we welcome you. We ask only that you follow in the Bible what we say and that you understand that our interest is to compare Mormon theology with Christian theology, with historic Christian theology, to obey the command of Scripture which says, test all things, hold fast to that which is good. And we believe that we must test all things, and we must find out when something purports to be a revelation of God whether or not it measures up to what the Bible says is God's revelation. Galatians chapter 1, the words of the Apostle Paul. Beginning at verse 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. But though we are an angel out of heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. The word accursed is the strongest word Paul could have chosen. Anathema, the divine curse. As we said before, I now say it again, if anyone preaches any other gospel unto you than what you have received, let him be anathema under the curse. Now, quite obviously, you're probably asking the question, what has this got to do with Mormonism? A great deal, because Mormonism allegedly came into existence by angelic revelation. The angel Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, Jr., according to Joseph Smith, and told him where to dig in the Hill Cumorah in New York State in the early 1820s. And there he would find the marvelous plates upon which were inscribed what is known today as the Book of Mormon. It was written in Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics, Joseph Smith told us, and it was necessary for the angel to provide him with the Urim and the Thummim from the Old Testament so that he could translate these Reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics into English. The Mormons have four sacred books. The Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and the Bible, insofar as it is correctly translated. The Mormons believe that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young are prophets of God. Each succeeding president of the church is a prophet of God. They believe that Joseph and Brigham spoke with the authority of God himself. And therefore, I'm going to confine most of my comments this evening to quotations from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and succeeding presidents of the church, because if you do not do so, then some Mormons say, well, that's so-and-so's opinion, and uh, he's entitled to think what he wants, but that's not what the church teaches. But if you stick with Joseph and Brigham, that am what the church teaches. And there is no way out of this type of discussion. Now, should we, understand, should we fail to understand the background of Mormonism, let me sketch briefly for you that Joseph Smith maintained that he received divine visions. At the age of 15, in the year 1820, he maintained that he received a vision in which God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ spoke to him. In this particular vision, Joseph Smith maintained that he was told specific things about the Christian church. 
And therefore, I would like to introduce as some very important evidence the fact that it is not Christianity which began any antagonism toward Mormonism. It was Mormonism that began antagonism toward Christianity. And I would like to quote Joseph Smith as my prime witness to prove the facts. Quote, My object in going to inquire of the Lord was to know which of all the sects was right, that I might know which to join. No sooner, therefore, did I get possession of myself so as to be able to speak, than I asked the personages who stood above me in the life which of all the sects was right and which I should join. I was answered, I must join none of them, for they were all wrong. And the person that you addressed me said, all their creeds were an abomination in his sight, and that their professors were all corrupt. Well, now, let's take a good long look at what Joseph was allegedly told by God. First of all, he must join no church, for they were all wrong. That takes care of all the professing Christian churches of the world with one sweep of the pen. Secondly, all their creeds or doctrines are abominations. So that takes care of the theological structure of the Christian church. And finally, all the professors are corrupt. That takes care of all the people. So what's left? Nothing. That is why Joseph Smith was chosen by God, so the Mormons believe, not to reform the church, but to restore the church. Mormonism doesn't claim to be Protestant or Catholic. It claims to be the church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints, the restoration of the gospel that was lost because of the church's apostasy. Now, if this claim is true, then we have a right to expect that the restored gospel will be in perfect accord with the historic gospel. If God cannot lie, then all his revelations will be consistent. We must judge all of the revelations of Joseph and Brigham by Holy Scripture. The Bible antedates the Book of Mormon. The Bible antedates the pearl of great price. The Bible antedates doctrine and covenants. We know that God has spoken in the Bible, and the Mormons admit it too. Therefore, since it's the oldest revelation, and since all of the revelations supposedly came from the same God, we have every right to expect that they will be in perfect harmony. Therefore, if Joseph and Brigham do not speak in accordance with Holy Scripture, then we know that what they are saying is false doctrine. And the Scripture says that if a prophet arises and speaks not according to the law and the testimony, it is because there is no light in them. So we put them to the test. It is not that God cannot give revelations today. He can give anything he wants to. It is not that Joseph and Brigham couldn't have been prophets of God. They could have. What we must do is check what they say God said by what we know God said. Then we will know whether or not they were prophets. Not on their word, but on the word of God. That is the supreme test. Because the Bible is the oldest, we will test their revelations by Scripture. We have no antagonism toward Mormons. 
Our antagonism is directed toward Mormon theology, toward that which professes to be in accord with Scripture. Tonight we will find out whether or not it is. Now, it's quite obvious that in the time that we have together, we are not going to be able to go through all of Mormon theology. So, we are going to discuss the Mormon doctrine of God and the person and nature of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us. If you are right in every area of theology and you are wrong on who God is and who Jesus Christ is, you are wrong enough to lose your soul for all eternity. So let us not waste our time with peripheral theology. Let us direct our attention to the centrality of the message. What do you think of Christ? Who is he? And what does Mormonism have to say about God and about the Lord Jesus? Now, so we'll have no doubt about this. A few years ago, Look Magazine conducted a series of inquiries into the religions of America. It was published in Look Magazine, and then later in a book, The Religions of America, by Leo Rostam. Look Magazine sent its reporters to the headquarters of every denomination in the country, and an official spokesman was selected by the denomination to answer for the denomination. There is no doubt that official spokesmen were chosen. The man who uttered these words is Richard Evans an official spokesman of the Mormon Church and one of the apostles of the Church at the time. Question. Do Mormons believe in the Holy Trinity? Answer. Yes. The Latter-day Saints accept the Godhead as three literal, literal distinct personalities. God the Father, His Son, Jesus the Christ, who is one with the Father in purpose and in thought, but separate from Him in physical fact, and the Holy Ghost, the personage of Spirit, Acts 7.55 etc. Close quote. The question was very direct. Do Mormons believe in the doctrine of the Holy Trinity? What doctrine of the Trinity? The Christian doctrine of the Trinity. That's the same question that was asked everybody in the survey. What is the Christian doctrine of the Trinity? Very simply, it is this. Within the nature of the one God, there are three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Do the Mormons really believe the Christian doctrine of the Trinity? Or are we simply using words with different meanings? The only way to ascertain the truth is to go to Mormon theology, to go to Mormon publications, to what the Mormons teach. And to do that, I would like to call your attention to what the Mormons say about the nature of God. I believe it is imperative for Christians to understand that in Mormon thinking, when you say God, there is a radical redefinition of terminology. We are not using the same terms. Let us find out what we mean by these terms. When we say God in Christian theology, we are talking about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the Holy Trinity. When the Mormons are talking about God, what do they mean? May I quote Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, two very safe sources, so there won't be any uh, flack as to misrepresentation. Quote, Joseph Smith, 
In the beginning, the head of the gods called the council of the gods, and they came together and concocted a plan to create the world and people it. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man. The Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's, the Son also. But the Holy Ghost does not have a body of flesh and bone, but is a personage of spirit. Brigham Young. When our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his celestial wives, with him. It appears that before Adam got here, he was practicing polygamy. This next statement is quite important. He is our Father and our God, and the only God with whom we have to do. Brigham Young. Gods exist, and we had better strive to prepare to be one with them. Joseph Smith. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Each of these gods says Parley Pratt in the key, to the, silence, uh, key to the Science of Theology, including Jesus Christ and his Father, being in possession of not merely an organized spirit, but a glorious body of flesh and bone. Many men say there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are only one God. I say this is a strange God anyhow. All are to be crammed into one God. Joseph Smith. And finally, Smith was assassinated in Carthage, Illinois, in 1844, which was a dastardly crime. And here is the last sermon he ever preached, excerpts from it. It was printed in the Millennial Star, very difficult to get hold of, but we have photostats of the original document. Smith preached this sermon. This is Mormon theology from the core. 18,000 people heard him preach it. It was taken down by five Mormon scribes, carefully compared, and then printed. I quote, I'm going to inquire after God, for I want you all to know him and to be familiar with him. I will go back before the world, before the beginning, before the world was, to show you what kind of a being God is. God was once as we are now, and is an exalted man, and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. I say if you were to see him today, you would see him like a man in form, like yourselves, in all the person, image, and very form of man. I'm going to tell you how God came to be God. We have imagined and supposed that God was God from all eternity. I will refute the idea and take away the veil so that you may see. It is the first principle of the gospel to know for certainty the character of God, to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another, that he was once a man like us. Yes, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on earth the same as Jesus Christ did. What did Jesus say? The scriptures inform us that Jesus said, As the Father has power to himself, even so has the Son power. To do what? By what the Father did. The answer is obvious. In a manner to lay down his body and to take it up again. Here then is eternal life. To know the only wise and true God, and you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves. And to be kings and priests the same as all gods before you namely by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in the everlasting burnings and to sit in glory as do those who sit enthroned in everlasting power.
Close quote. You have got to learn how to become gods. That has a familiar ring to it for those who are familiar with Holy Scripture. It certainly is not the Christian doctrine of the Trinity. In the beginning, the gods all got together and decided to create. It's not Christian theology. And if God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man, and if the Father has a body of flesh and bones, the Bible knows nothing about it. And we must ascertain the truth from Holy Scripture. So I would like to go to the Bible and to demonstrate what Scripture has to say and to test what Joseph Smith says by Scripture. I was preaching in a church in Candor, New York, a few years ago, and I had been followed from town to town by two carloads of Mormon missionaries. They knew of my published itinerary from a magazine, and they were following with me across New York State from church to church. And they would get up in the question period and question me, and then they would sit down. And we got to be rather friendly after a while, after two or three churches. One night, we got to discussing some of these things in the question period, and I pointed out that every young Mormon male, member of the priesthood, is seeking for exaltation. He wants to become a god. And when I pointed this out, some of the people in the church were shocked, terribly shocked. And I thought, well, there are some Mormons here. Why not ask them? So I asked one of the Mormon missionaries whom I knew to stand up and tell the people. So he stood up rather sheepishly. I said, tell the people. I said, uh, tell them the truth. Tell them that you really hope to become a god someday. They really want to know. Everybody looked at him so closely. And he said, in the providence of my heavenly father, someday I do hope to become a god. And all the people just were totally flustered. They'd never heard this before. And I said, um, do you know where that doctrine came from? He said, why, yes. He said, uh, that came from Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. You know that. You've been preaching it for the last couple of weeks. And I said, no. I said, uh, actually, I said, it doesn't come from Joseph and Brigham. It comes from the Bible. He said, well, he said, that should make it even stronger. He says, because you don't believe Joseph and Brigham. All you believe is the Bible. I said, right. I said, I want you to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3, and I want to show you where this doctrine came from. So we turned to it. Now the serpent was more subtle than all the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes will be opened and you shall become as gods. Now I want you to compare that with the last sermon of Joseph Smith. And you have got to learn how to become gods. Well, Joseph didn't think this one up, neither did Brigham. This one was thought up by the Prince of Darkness personally. Belief in it got us expelled from the Garden of Eden. And the Mormons who are believing it today are being prevented from entering the kingdom of heaven because of it. Same doctrine, same source, same destiny.
eternal judgment. So if you really want to know where the doctrine came from, here it is, Genesis chapter 3. Satan is the author of the doctrine that you can become a god. But the scripture says you're never going to make it because God has reserved this honor of divinity for himself alone. Now, should you have any doubt about it, let's go to the scripture and find out what the Bible has to say about the nature of God. This is very important. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 43, a very marvelous passage of scripture. Verse 10. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen. I want you to notice the progression here. That you may know, number one. That you may believe, number two. That you may understand me, number three. Is that clear enough? Know, believe, and understand. I am he. Before me there was no God formed, neither will there be after me. No Mormon is going to make it. God says, I have an exclusive on Godhood. And nobody makes it but me. Why? I, even I, am the Lord. Verse 11. Beside me there is no Savior. Verse 12. I have declared and I have saved. I have showed when there was no strange God among you. Therefore you are my witnesses, says the Lord. I am God. End of argument. Now, Mormonism says that there is more than one God. They point to the fact that there are gods mentioned in the Bible. Satan is called God of this world. In the Psalms, it is written, Ye are God, speaking of the rulers of Israel. Moses was spoken of as a God in the eyes of Pharaoh. What do we mean by this? 1 Corinthians 8 also says, Lord's many and God's many. The Mormons love these passages. And the terrible part about it is the average Christian does not deal with it. But let's deal with it tonight so we understand it. There is really only one God by nature. You can make a God out of anything. You can make a God out of an angel. You can make a God out of a person. You can make a God out of money. You can make a God out of status. You can make a God out of sex. You can make a God out of anything you want by worshiping it. But there is only one God by nature. One God who is self-existent. One God who is all-powerful, all-knowing. One God who is all-mighty and one God revealed, clear to us in Scripture. Now, by acknowledging the fact that there is only one God by nature, we get directly to the heart of what the Bible is teaching. If you turn in your Bible to the book of Galatians, you will see that Paul explained this to the complete satisfaction of anybody, even a Mormon who is willing to look hard at it and see what the apostle was teaching. Galatians chapter 4. Verse 8, writing to pagans, the apostle says, Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are not gods. There's only one God by nature. One God who exists by himself eternally. 
You can make a god or a goddess out of anything. So there are Lord's many and God's many in heaven and earth. But the apostle continues in 1 Corinthians 8, For us, one God the Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. An idol is nothing in itself. So simply worshiping something doesn't make it God. You can call something a God, but not God by nature. Please make that distinction in your reasoning. It's an important one. Because what separates Mormonism from Christianity is the difference between polytheism and monotheism. And you ought to write that down. Your dictionary can give it to you. What is polytheism? The belief that there is more than one God. You don't have to worship them. All you have to do is believe they exist. And Mormons believe that there are many gods. The Bible says there's only one. Only one God. That is the core of Judaism and Christianity, which are monotheistic. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Isaiah 45.22, Look unto me, and be ye saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God. Beside me there is none other. What we are getting here is a repetition of the uniqueness of God in the Bible. We are not getting Mormon theology. We are getting Christian theology. Galatians chapter 3 also tells us something else. Verse 20. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. God is one. Not many, one. So what have we learned? We've learned from Genesis chapter 3 that Joseph's doctrine that you can become a god originated with the devil. And secondly, we learned from the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's only one God by nature, the eternal and living God. And we have learned also from our lecture on Jehovah's Witnesses last night on the doctrine of the Trinity that this one God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, a very important point is raised here, and I want to bring it into focus. The Mormons say, and I quote Joseph Smith, the Father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man's. Does he really? Does God the Father have a body as tangible as ours? Is this Christian theology? Is God an exalted man? Well, let's find out. Jesus Christ gave the only description in the New Testament of his Father. The only one found in John chapter 4, verse 24. You ought to mark it down in your Bibles. Jesus described the nature of God. What did he say? God is a spirit. Or as the Greek puts it, God is spirit. God is spirit. Now, naturally, you're going to ask me the logical question that follows. What is spirit? And I can answer that by asking you to cross-reference John 4:24 with Luke chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. Jesus appeared to his disciples after his resurrection, as I pointed out, in dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses who don't believe in his bodily resurrection. They thought, his disciples thought, that he was what? A spirit. What did Jesus say to them? He said, why are you troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your heart? Handle me and see. 
A spirit does not have flesh and bone, as you see me have. So one thing we know about a spirit, a spirit does not have flesh and bone. That is incontrovertible revelation. Because of that, we are positive that when Joseph Smith says the father has a body of flesh and bone as tangible as man, he is diametrically opposite to the teaching of Jesus Christ. I cannot help but remember an incident in my ministry when I was scheduled to preach in a church and had made preparations to go there, and I received a telephone call from a very harried pastor in upper New York State. He said, uh, Dr. Martin, please come and preach in our town right away. He said, we've got a whole horde of Mormon missionaries that have descended on our community. He said, they're living in the houses of some of the people here. He said, it's confused so many Christians. He said, for the first time that I can remember in this community, all the Christian churches are agreed on one thing. We need help. I said, well, would you get the Baptists, the Methodists, the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Congregationalists, and everybody else to agree that they've got a common foundation, there must be something to it. I'm awfully sorry I can't come. He said, but you've got to come. He said, we have to have you come and deliver a lecture on this subject. He said, we just haven't got the answers. I said, well, I'll be glad to send you some pamphlets and tracts for distribution. He said, please come. I said, I can't. I said, I'm booked. There was silence on the phone for a minute. He said, we're going to have a prayer meeting. I said, well, praise the Lord. He said, uh, we're going to pray that God cancels that booking. And he says, if God cancels that booking, you'll come here, won't you? I said, if God cancels the booking, I'll come. I was sure that I wasn't going. About two weeks later, I got a telephone call from the man who was handling my bookings. He said, uh, say, uh, I got a telephone call. He said, you know, you're booked in such and such a week. I said, yeah. He said, uh, they want to change the date on that. He said, I don't know what the reason is, but he said something in the church. And he said, they want to move it up. And he said, that gives you a week off. Does that make you happy? I said, it certainly does, but I won't be off. He said, why not? I said, I'm going to be in Corning, New York. He said, how do you know? I said, you wouldn't believe it if I told you. But I'm going to be there. I called this little minister up on the telephone, and I said, uh, Brother, do you remember the call you put through two weeks ago? He said, Hallelujah, God has answered prayer. <laughs> that fellow had a direct connection. I said, Okay, you win. I'll be there. I said, They canceled. He said, Praise God. He met me at the airport, and I came. If you ever wanted to see a community aroused, they were aroused. They were hanging out the windows of the church. The first two or three rows were filled with Mormon missionaries, and they had elected a spokesman. And when I was going through this material on Mormon theology on the nature of God, and I ended by saying, Mormon theology is not Christian theology, it is not Jewish theology, it is not Trinitarian theology, it is polytheistic theology. And it excludes them from consideration as Christians. On this, all Christian scholars are in agreement. The question period began. This young Mormon stood up and he said, uh, Dr. Martin, he said, I appreciate your presentation. He said, uh, quite obviously, you've done your homework. And uh, he said, I'm not here to debate with you. 
He said, however, he said, I would like to make a few remarks and ask a question. I said, well, you can't make any remarks, but you can ask any question you want. He said, all right, let me put it this way. He said, you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, or Doctrine and Covenants. I said, I do not. He said, but you do believe in the Bible. I said, I do. He said, if I can prove to you from the Bible that God is an exalted man, will you believe it? I said, I will. He said, will you believe that Joseph and Brigham are prophets? I said, I will. He said, then let's go to our Bibles. You should have heard the Christians go to their Bibles. You could, you could hear the wisping of the pages right on the spot. And then he started. Underneath us are the everlasting arms. God has arms. His head and his hair were as white as wool. God has a head. And the eye of the Lord is upon the earth. God has eyes. God's ears never close so that he can hear the righteous. God has ears. And the hand of the Lord wrote on the wall, quoted Daniel, God has hands. The fingers of God, God has fingers. He said, your feasts are a stench in my nostrils. God has a nose. The word has gone out of my mouth. God has a mouth. And he went down the line, eyes, ears, nose, mouth, hands, feet. When he got all finished, he said, there, sir, our prophets are correct. God is an exalted man. And I said, don't stop now. I said, read me one more verse. He said, what is that? I said, read Psalm 91, verse 4, and read it just as loud. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. the chicken. It's going to get even worse. Our God is the consuming fire. Now he's a black furnace. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Now he's a loaf of bread. I am the door, wood, hinges. You believe that? Well, this Mormon boy, he broke up. He just couldn't help it. He just started to laugh. And the Mormons started to laugh themselves. They, they got the message. And he said, well, he said, that's figurative language. I said, aha, now we have arrived at the truth. I taught the science of hermeneutics, which is biblical interpretation, for five years. One of the first things that you learn is examine a context very carefully so that you don't take everything literally. If you take everything literally, you end up with chickens, blast furnaces, and big men. What you better do is examine things very carefully and find out what the writer intended and the writer intended to portray God in anthropomorphic terms, in human terms, so that we would never forget an eye that never closes, an ear that always hears, a hand that cannot be stopped. I said the same verse that says his head and his hair were as white as wool also says out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. You don't really believe God has a sword for a tongue. No, he said, I don't believe that. I said, fine. I said, you see, Joseph and Brigham didn't understand the science of biblical interpretation. And they were stuck with these things. You don't have to be stuck with them. You understand. God is not an exalted man. He's not a big man. God is spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's deal with the God of the Bible and don't make him a big man. And don't make him Adam either. Brigham said, Adam is our father and our God. 
And the only God with whom we have to do, that is a lie. Adam is not anybody's God. Father, yes, first of the human race, but not anybody's God. He's certainly not the only God with whom the Mormons should have to do. Now, I was preaching in a church up in Connecticut. After I finished, one of the top Mormons in the district got up. I'll never forget, he was absolutely enraged at the quotations I was using from the scriptures and from Joseph and Brigham in the question period. And he said, I would like ten minutes to come to the pulpit and correct all of these misrepresentations. I said, no, you can't have ten seconds in the pulpit, but you can ask any question you want. He said, I want you to know that as a Mormon, I believe in only one God. And he said, this thing that you're talking about, I know nothing about. And he went on for a couple of minutes. So I said, well, let's go into it for a minute. I said, do you believe there's one God for this planet or one God for the universe? One God for the universe. And I said, how about for this planet? I believe in one God for the universe. We have a tape of this. You have to hear it to believe it. And I said, well, let's go a little bit further. I said, do you believe that there are gods that exist in the universe? That they really exist? He said, I believe in only one God. I said, do you believe Joseph Smith's a prophet of God? Yes, I do. I said, I want you to hear the words of Joseph Smith, and I read these words. I said, do you believe that? He said, I do. I said, do you believe that in the beginning, the head of the gods called the council of the gods together? Yes, I do. I said, how can you say that and say there's only one God? He said, well, I don't have anything to do with those gods. <laughs> now, that's right on the tape. Now, this is Mormon logic. You better learn it real quick. That's exactly the way it works. There's only one chief God who runs everything, and they have nothing to do with all the rest of them. But you see, this is important. Very important. If you admit that there exists more than one God, According to the Bible, you're a polytheist. No polytheist can be a Christian. That is what separates Mormonism from Christianity forever. You can use our terminology, you can quote our Bible, you can mention Jesus Christ, and you can follow the Christian ethic and morality. But if you do not have the God of the Bible, and if you are a polytheist, you can never be a Christian. It is an extremely subtle and dangerous theology that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young have given to the Mormons, many of whom are dedicated, fine, hard-working, sincere people who have really believed that these men are prophets of God, but they're not. They are false prophets because they do not speak according to the law and the testimony. And their doctrine of God is not the biblical doctrine of God. We judge them by Holy Scripture, and they are weighed in the balances and found wanting. What do the Mormon theologians, Joseph and Brigham, think of Jesus Christ? Well, what did they tell Look Magazine? That's worthwhile, because that's a public domain. Do Mormons believe in the virgin birth? Answer, yes. The Latter-day Saints accept the miraculous conception of Jesus the Christ. That sounds pretty orthodox. They accept the miraculous conception of Jesus the Christ. But do they really accept 
the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. In order to understand it, we have to go to what the Mormons say is the virgin birth. To do that, we have to go to Mormon theology, and I can't think of a better source to go to than Brigham Young. For Brigham Young spoke in no uncertain terms about the person of Jesus Christ. Let me quote him on this subject, so there will be no doubt. Quote, When the Virgin Mary conceived the child Jesus, the Father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. And who was the Father? He was the first of the human family. Jesus, our elder brother, was begotten in the flesh by the same character that was in the Garden of Eden, and who is our Father in heaven. Close quote. Now think about that for a second. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. Turn to your Bibles. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. For openers. Mary is told by angelic proclamation. The Holy Ghost will come upon thee. The power of the highest will overshadow thee. That which is to be born of thee will be called Holy Son of God. Brigham Young, when the Virgin Mary conceived the child Jesus, the Father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. Brigham is not telling the truth. You have a choice between Luke and Brigham. Make your choice. I prefer Luke because he happens to be a writer of inspired scripture, one of the witnesses. And his writings antedate Brigham. I would direct your attention to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, to call the Apostle Matthew to the witness stand, so that his testimony may be heard. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary was engaged to Joseph before they had sexual relations, she was found pregnant by the Holy Ghost. That's a direct reading from the Greek text. And Joseph, her husband, became, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. And while he thought on these things, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Matthew 1, verse 20. Matthew and the angel have a different view than Brigham. May I now quote Brigham in contrast. When the Virgin Mary conceived the child Jesus, the Father had begotten him in his own likeness. He was not begotten by the Holy Ghost. Matthew, quoting the angel to Mary, Do not be afraid to take Mary thy wife. Excuse me, the, quoting the vision to Joseph. Do not be afraid to take unto thee Mary thy wife. That which is conceived in her is by the Holy Ghost. I believe that we must accept the evidence of Scripture. Absolutely is conclusive. Brigham Young did not tell the truth. If they speak not according to the law and the testimony, it is because there is no light in them. He was not a true prophet. He was a false prophet. But he had something. Who was the father? He was the first of the human family. And that always puzzled me. 
who was the first of the human family? So I did a little research, and I was preaching not too long ago in a church in California, and a gentleman came to me after the service, a Mormon. He said, you know, that problem puzzled me too. And he handed me a book that I thought was quite revealing. And he said, I'm giving this to you because of who you are. And he said, because of the way you presented what you did. He said, you will find here exhaustive documentation on the doctrine of Adam, God. He said, from Mormon sources. He said, I know that members of the church are trying to bury this. He said, but it's only fair that the truth be told. He said, Brigham did teach the doctrine of Adam, God, and so did Joseph Smith. Doctrine and Covenants, section 27. He said, I think you ought to have some more documentation. And he said, I'm giving it to you free. And he gave me 136 pages of documentation, all of which I have had the opportunity to go over. I'm happy to point out that he did a fine job of research on this, documenting the teaching of his own church. What is the doctrine of Adam God? This is it. That the first of the human family, Adam God, came into the world with Eve, one of his celestial wives, lived, sinned, died, was resurrected, rose to the rank of exaltation or godhood, then later on became, through sexual intercourse, the father of Jesus of Nazareth. Brigham taught it. There are at least 48 Mormon volumes that contain it, that I have been able to find, official publications of the church. And, I might point out, Brigham Young's authoritative discourses on the subject. But what interests me is a quotation from the Articles of Faith by Talmadge. I want to quote it to you. Concerning Jesus Christ's unique status in the flesh, quote, the offspring of a mortal mother and an immortal, glorified, and resurrected father, close quote. Adam God is quite obviously who we're talking about. That statement was expunged from Articles of Faith in the 1925 edition. Fortunately, I have the 1923 edition, along with lots more quotations. You might say, why are you sticking with these quotations? I'm sticking with Brigham Young. For Mormonism rises and falls on Joseph and Brigham. If they are false prophets, the whole structure collapses. And they are. And therefore, it's possible to be sincerely involved in Mormonism and be sincerely wrong. When the Mormons told Look Magazine, yes, we believe in the miraculous conception of Jesus the Christ, I'll say it was miraculous. It outdid the New Testament in spades. He was conceived by an immortal, resurrected, and glorified father, Adam God. What a horror to introduce into Christian theology. The scripture says he was begotten by the Holy Ghost. That is the end of the argument. 
Now, there are many other things which could be brought out in reference to this. But I think one of the things that ought to be faced is the truth about the Mormon Savior. Quite frequently, Mormons will say, as one of them said to me at Lakewood, and one of them said to me at St. Andrews in Newport, I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I asked the question, which Jesus? And this Mormon lady, a long time in the church, said, what do you mean? Which Jesus? I said, you know, there are lots of Jesuses running around the landscape. There's the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses, who is the Archangel Michael. There's the Jesus of the Baha'is, one of nine great manifestations of divinity. There's the Jesus of the Spiritists, who's an advanced medium. I said, there's the Jesus of the Theosophists, an incarnated world soul. The Jesus of the Unitarians, an extraordinarily good man. And then there's the Jesus of the Mormons. One God among many gods. The offspring of Adam, God, and the Virgin Mary. The spirit brother of Lucifer, who became Satan. And she looked at me, and she said, what did you say? I said, that's who he is. It's found in your own writings. May I draw it to your attention? It's found in the Pearl of Great Price. There was a great argument among the gods about who was going to be the savior of the world. And Lucifer stepped forth and spoke. I'm now quoting the councils of the gods. This is Mormon theology. And uh, I, I don't want to be any doubt in your mind as to what was said. But this was what Lucifer is supposed to have said. He's supposed to have said, I will be the Savior. And he's supposed to have said that none should be lost. He offered himself as the Savior to the council of the gods. And he was rejected. His rejection by the gods and by the Father God, Elohim, caused him to revolt and be expelled. Jesus was chosen as the Savior. Jesus, according to Mormon theology, was the spirit brother of Lucifer before he entered the world. I submit that whatever kind of theology this is, it is certainly not Christian theology. For Jesus Christ was never Lucifer's brother. Spirit or flesh, he is the creator of the angels. Creator of the angels. He is not, by any stretch of the imagination, brother of the devil, or of Lucifer before he became the devil. Yet you will find in Mormon theology that statement. He also, and I'm quoting again, celebrated his own marriage to both the Marys and to Martha, whereby he could see his seed before he was crucified, Apostle Orson Hyde. Jesus had at least three wives. He was a polygamist. We're not talking about the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was conceived by the Holy Ghost. The Jesus of the Bible was creator of the universe. The Jesus of the Bible made all things. The scripture says, for by him were all things created. Colossians chapter 1. Visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, principalities and powers. All things were created by him and for him. He exists before all things. 
And it was he who said before Abraham was, I am, claiming that he was God himself in human form. This is the Jesus of the Bible. But it is not the Jesus of Mormon theology. Don't settle for Joseph's Jesus. Don't settle for Brigham's Jesus. Settle for the Jesus of the Bible. That's the only one who is able to save and to transform. I was preaching in Oregon not too long ago with a young Mormon and his wife sitting in the front row along with about 15 other Mormons. He got so mad while I was preaching, he turned as red as this young lady's sweater. That's pretty red. But while she was listening, the Holy Spirit spoke to her heart. And she bowed her head in that pew, a lifelong Mormon. And she said, Lord, the Bible does say this. And the Bible is the oldest revelation. And I've got to judge everything by it. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young must be false prophets. Please come into my heart, Lord Jesus, and save me. And she was born again in the front row of that church. She walked out of that church a regenerate Christian. She didn't know anything about Christian theology, but she was truly redeemed. She went home with her husband, and on the way home, he had nothing but bad adjectives for me. But she had a copy of my book, and she sat up and read the chapter that night and got a hold of the Bible. And the next morning, she lit into him with the gospel. And he, first of all, threatened to beat her up. Then he started to drag her from Mormon authority to Mormon authority and up before a Mormon court. And my, that girl went through a living hell. Little slip of a girl. But she said to me later, all I knew was that my sins were forgiven and that Jesus Christ was real and that I was out from under and I was saved and I was going to hang on no matter what. And she hung on. Well, he got so mad, finally he wouldn't talk to her. And she said, I love you anyhow, dear, and I'm going to pray for you. And that made him even madder. <laughs> and the Mormon bishop came around and chewed her out. And she said, I love you too. I'm going to pray for you. You need to be saved. And he was wild and stamped out of the house. One night, her husband disappeared. Couldn't find him anywhere. The bathroom door was locked. She pounded on the door. Where are you? He said, don't bother me. I don't want to be left alone. And he didn't come out of the bathroom until 2 in the morning. He came out with a copy of my book and the Bible. Woke her up. Turned the light on. Sat on the bed. He said, I've been raised a Mormon in Utah all my life. He said, and I have been checking every reference this man gives in the Bible. And I've been checking out what Joseph and Brigham said. He said... I think they're false prophets. And he said, I think I have got to do what you did. Will you pray with me? She got out of bed and knelt down with him, and she led him to Jesus Christ. I came up to Portland to preach again. I met that young couple. They were being baptized in Hillside Baptist Church. Glory.
They said, we wonder if you'd do us a favor. The Mormon bishop is coming over to see us, and we told him that you were a friend of ours. We'd like you to meet with him and us, because we've been bugged and bugged and bugged and bugged and bugged, and maybe you can say something to him that will get unbugged. I said, all right. So we met in the Hilton Hotel, and he walked right in. He didn't know I was going to be there. Came in, sat down. I introduced myself, and uh, he said, well, he said, I really can't talk in front of this gentleman. What I have to do is talk to you two Mormons. And, uh, or members, excuse me, he didn't use the word Mormons. He said, members of the church. And this young girl, I'll never forget her, she bounced out of that chair and she said, I am not a member of the church. My husband is not a member of the church. We are members of Jesus Christ's church. We are born of his spirit. We are finished with Joseph Smith and Brigham Young and the Mormon gospel. And we testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that you've got to get saved. He said, I see there's no sense talking to you. He said, but there'll have to be an inquiry and a trial. She said, go ahead and do anything you want. She said, but I don't see how you can try me when I'm not there. She said, I have left. You can't put me out. I've gone. And she witnessed to that man. Those two kids finished their education this year and are going on to serve Christ. I want to tell you something. God touches Mormons. He touches cultists and occultists. He touches anybody. Why? Because Jesus Christ's gospel can penetrate the darkness no matter how gloomy it may appear. And the Holy Spirit is able to open the eyes of people no matter how deeply embedded in sin they may be. And Mormons are not to be considered objects of wrath. They're not to be considered objects of argument. They're to be considered souls for whom Jesus Christ shed his blood on the cross. A mission field on our doorstep. They put us to shame in knocking on doors for another gospel. Would to God we knock on doors with the true gospel and with the living Christ. That's the real challenge. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved, past tense. Not by yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, lest any man should boast. Not by works, not by works, not by works. That has to be pounded into the souls of men. It is by grace that you have been saved. Your works testify that you are redeemed, but they do not contribute one whit to your salvation. Joseph and Brigham have deceived you into believing that you must work for redemption. It is true that faith without works is dead. Why? Because works are the natural outgrowth of a living faith. But works don't save you, and the New Testament doesn't teach it. New Testament teaches grace saves you through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the New Testament teaches you that faith in Christ alone delivers from all the powers of sin. Now, Brigham Young didn't believe this. And he taught a doctrine which the Mormons have been trying to cover up for years. He taught that awful doctrine of blood atonement. And I want to quote this because a great many people don't believe it, but they ought to listen to it. Because it's a very thorough presentation, and Brigham taught it. Listen to it. Quote, there is not a man or woman who violates covenants made with their God that will not be required to pay the debt. 
The blood of Christ will never wipe that out. Your own blood must atone for it. The judgments of the Almighty will come sooner or later, and every man and woman will have to atone for their covenants. All mankind love themselves, and let those principles be known by an individual. He'll be glad to have his blood shed. I can refer you to plenty of instances where men have been righteously slain in order to atone for their sins. This is loving our neighbor as ourselves. If he needs help, help him. If he wants salvation and it's necessary to spill his blood on earth in order to be saved, spill it. Close quote. And they spilled it. This was the doctrine of blood atonement where Mormons who believed that they had sinned beyond the blood of Christ's power to save were summoned by the high council and executed for their sins. This is what Brigham refers to. There are some sins the blood of Christ will not wipe out. Your own blood must pay for it. The horror of this doctrine is that what Christ's blood can't pay for, yours can. But 1 John 1, 7 and 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's God's promise. He and Brigham do not agree on eternal salvation. The thief on the cross looked to Jesus of Nazareth and said, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. It was a liar. He was a thief. He was a murderer. He was lost. And in that one moment, he cried out, save me. What would Brigham say to him? Well, listen. Quote, some of our old traditions teach us that a man guilty of atrocious and murderous acts may savingly repent on the scaffold, and upon his execution will hear the expression, bless God, he's gone to heaven to be crowned in glory through the all-redeeming merits of Christ the Lord. This is all nonsense. Such a character will never see heaven. Close quote. That's a lie. Jesus Christ can save. At the last minute, those who come to him by faith. The God of the Mormons is not the God of the Bible. Polytheism separates us from Mormonism because we are monotheists. The Mormon doctrine of Jesus Christ is the antithesis of biblical revelation. It teaches that he is the offspring of Adam, God, and the Virgin Mary by sexual intercourse. It teaches that Jesus of Nazareth was the spirit brother of the devil before he entered the world, or Lucifer, who became the devil. Mormon theology teaches that Jesus was a polygamist. The Jesus of the Mormons is not the Jesus of the Bible. The Mormon doctrine of salvation is that you are saved by repentance, baptism, faith, and good works. And the Christian doctrine of salvation is you're saved by grace through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Period. And that your works testify to this salvation. And the Mormon doctrine of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young as prophets of God is contrary to the biblical doctrine because, as we have seen, they speak not according to the law and the testimony. When I was preparing my book, The Maze of Mormonism, my mother, to whom I dedicated the book, who is now with the Lord, said, you're pretty rough on Brigham Young. And I said, 
I don't think so. I said all I did was tell the truth. All of it's documented, all of it's factual. Somebody has to. Somebody has to be offensive sometimes because the truth itself is offensive at times. Jesus Christ was incarnate love and incarnate truth, and he offended everybody virtually in the religious establishment of his day. If I have any satisfaction at all, it is compassion for Mormons who are lost because Brigham believed Joseph, who believed Satan. I urge you in Jesus Christ's name, be reconciled to